prelude to it, but can't think of a good breakfast tie-in to Amos, so we'll just start at chapter 3. Now, it's good some of you have returned from last night, so I can correct an error I made. I said that uh, Gilead was the area today known as Golan Heights. That's not true. It's a little bit south of that area to the east of the Jordan River. Bashan, or Bashan, according to some, that we're going to see in chapter 4 in this session, is the area today known as the Golan Heights. I totally botched that last night, so we'll start out with correcting the errata. And uh, there may be other errors I made too, so hopefully the Lord will bring them to light and I can correct them as well. We want to read at Amos chapter 3, verse 1. Amos 3, 1. And just, this is math for history majors, okay? Most history majors aren't math specialists. There are exceptions, and I hate them. But uh, I, myself, was not good at math. So we're going to do simple math here in three sessions today. We're covering three, uh, two chapters apiece, excuse me. So chapters 3 and 4 in this session, 5 and 6 in the next, and 7 and 8 in the third, which sounds like a lot, but they're really not that long chapters. So we'll have no problem, I think, getting through that material. And then tomorrow we're going to just take a leisurely stroll through one chapter, chapter 9, Lord willing. So we'll get through the book that way. Amos chapter 3 and verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? We'll read more, of course, but that's enough to begin. Now, we remember we're in the 7th century B.C., These are words spoken regarding the last days of Israel, of the ten tribes, the northern kingdom, that are going to be taken away into captivity. And for background, on your own time, I'd really encourage you to read 2 Kings chapter 17, which tells you about the Assyrians coming and carrying them away into captivity. And there's some interesting tie-ins there, even with things we read in the book of Amos. But God is sending prophets to speak to Israel, not just Amos. We mentioned last night that Hosea and Micah and Isaiah and Joel are all active in this same time period. And some ministering more to Judah, the southern kingdom, some like Amos, more ministering to the northern kingdom. But either way, God is not silent. His word is going forth and God is warning people. And it's interesting even that he starts chapter 3 with this word here, which in English doesn't come to us with that much gravity. I mean, we could paraphrase it, I suppose, listen up or something like that. But really, this is a loaded word for Israel because their confession to this day that if you talk to an observant Jew, what is the identity of Israel summarized in two sentences. It would be Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, I believe, which they call the Shema. Shema being the Hebrew verb to hear. And they say in Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength. And so that's their identity. They would say, this is what we stand for 
as a people that God is our God, that the Lord, capital L-O-R-D in our English Bibles, sometimes transliterated Yahweh or the older writers Jehovah, that he is our God. We don't worship the gods of the nations. We're not idolaters or polytheists, the Jews would say. We worship the Lord God of Israel. Unfortunately, we know as a nation today that they don't recognize the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And the Lord Jesus was quite transparent about the fact that if you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father either. Because as the Lord explained in Matthew 11 for one passage, that no one knows the Father except the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son reveals him. So until they as a nation, or until individual Jews for that matter, receive the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, their Messiah, they are in spiritual blindness and unbelief. And we could say the same thing, of course, about Gentiles. This is not at all to pick on Jewish people or nothing anti-Semitic about it, but uh, we know that Gentiles who don't know Jesus as the Son of God and as Lord and Messiah, that they too are in darkness and unbelief. And the beautiful thing in our day is we're told to go forth into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things whatsoever the Lord has commanded us, as Matthew 28 would tell us, and Mark 16 is even more succinct, isn't it, when it tells us, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So when they heard this word here, Shema, this is the God who originally called them as a nation, who brought them out of Egypt, who made them his people, who gave them promises as far back as the patriarch Abraham, and who gave them the law at Sinai. This is that God speaking to them, saying, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, it says, O children of Israel, and against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying. Now, I think it's over 200 times in the Old Testament that God says he is for Israel. That's a wonderful thing for God to be for you, right? Uh, Emmanuel is that title from Isaiah chapter 7. You shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we know in Matthew 1, our New Testament starts off that way. I know it's a little early for Christmas, but really the incarnation is a doctrine for the whole year round, okay? It's absolutely fundamental to what we believe. And we're told that not only would they call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins, the Lord saves or the Lord is salvation, but also he will be Emmanuel, God with us. And it's a wonderful thing to say, God is with me. After all, Romans 8 rhetorically asks the question, if God be for us, who can be against us? But if God is against you, that's a solemn thing, isn't it? Now, the reason God says this is not because he hates Israel. It's quite the contrary. This is what we're going to say, tough love. And we see a lot of this in Amos that God has to speak to them sternly, much the way Paul, an apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ, felt about the Galatians, that he said in Galatians 4, I wish that I could be among you and change my voice. Now, I don't know if you had a father like this, but I did. Big, six foot, 200 plus pound, strong, German to the core, and with his voice, he could control me. 
when I was old enough to remember anything. He could say my name. And he could say it very invitingly, and I'd be, hey, Dad, what's up, you know? But if I was across the house three rooms away, and he said, Keith, dude, I am in trouble now. (laughs) What have I done? What has Dad found out? (laughs) Because I knew I did it. It was just a question of what, you know, what did he discover? And Dad would change his tone when I was in trouble. And Dad could make me stop in my tracks with the tone of his voice. And and that's rather like what the Lord is doing here. He's trying to shake up this nation that is really complacent in its sin. He says, you only, verse 2, have I known... By the way, he speaks about bringing them up, the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt. So again, it's back to the gospel. It's remember your redemption, their nation story, their origin as a people goes back to the redeeming work of God, that the Lord purchased them out of slavery by blood. And he says, verse 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, for the younger people, maybe, it is important to realize what he's saying when he says, You only have I known of all the peoples of the earth. He's not saying, I don't know about any of the other nations of the earth, because God knows everything. He's omniscient, is what the theologians say. He has all knowledge, right? And many scriptures tell us that God is the all-wise God, that he knows the end from the beginning. Obviously, he made the nations, and he knows all about them. But here the word is known in the sense of intimacy. I've come into an intimate relationship with you. The way that Adam knew Eve, his wife, okay? Then there's a physical dimension to marriage that it would talk about in Genesis with them. But fundamental, even before that, there's that intimacy of being brought together, of being one family. And here God says, basically, of all the families of the earth, I've chosen you to be my people. I've known you. Therefore, verse 2 says, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, this is rather like, again, your dad or mom saying to you, because you're my son, I'm going to give you a spanking. What? (laughs) I thought you were going to say, because I'm your son, you're going to give me a Hershey bar. Because I'm your son, you're going to give me a piece of pizza. You know, all that good stuff, right? No, I mean, you can go out in public and you can see a lot of people's children, unfortunately, behaving badly, okay? Seems like more all the time. And you can go out and you can observe different children behaving badly. And I don't pay much attention in most cases. Why not? Because they're not my children. They're not my responsibility. Now, it's not that I don't care at a certain level. That speaks poorly of where we're headed as a society and as a nation, right? But let my kid act up, and I'm on that if I know about it. I want to deal with that right away. I want to correct that behavior. Why? Because I hate my child? No, I love my child. And I want to teach them that rebellion and sin has consequences. It has bad effects. It's a real cause and effect type of thing that if you grow up thinking I can do whatever I want without restraint, that's a train wreck, isn't it? And we've dealt with children sometimes in our Sunday school and VBS and other things where they're coming out of situations where there's no parents in the home that are supervising them, where people aren't watching their behavior. And 
It's the saddest thing because you can tell these kids want to know where the lines are. They want to know what the limit is. And nobody tells them. In fact, society tells them there are no limits. And so they wander around truly lost. How do I behave? How do I deal with myself? How do I deal with the things I know in my own heart and mind that are wrong? And the wonderful thing about the way God designs the family as it ought to be is, as Proverbs says, and Hebrews 12 quotes it, whom a father loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. So discipline is not harshness and cruelty and abuse. Discipline, rightly done, is the expression of loving correction. It's saying, I want you to behave in a right way. So since I've known you, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Now think about this. As our brother quoted, later he's going to say in the book, prepare to meet your God. And as you think about your relationship with God, Israel, you know that there's sort of signs coming. There are things I'm showing you that show that judgment is right around the corner and you better deal with that. He goes on to say, again, using the imagery of a lion, which we saw last night back in chapter 1, verse 3, it says the Lord roars from Zion. Here he says, will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he's caught nothing? Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there's no trap for it? Will a snare spring up from the earth if it has caught nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there's a calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? And all those questions presuppose, yes, the lion does have prey. Yes, there is a trap. Yes, calamity is coming. You better get ready for this. You better deal with this because the Lord knows your sin, knows what you've done. Now, of course, it's easy for us to look back at this remove of almost 2,700 years and say, oh, well, weren't they behaving badly? Israelites behaving badly, right? But remember, I titled this series Lessons for the Last Days from Amos. Not just the last days of Israel, 8th century BC, but the last days of our world. Because we're in last days. Ever since the Lord Jesus came to earth and died and rose again from the dead and ascended and has entered into heaven and is seated on the right hand of God, things are ticking away toward the day when the Lord is going to come for his church to catch us up in the air, and then when he's going to take up Israel again and deal with all the nations and eventually culminate with his second coming to earth. So in that sense, uh, we're not waiting for further uh, works of the Lord in redemption. The work has been done. The Lord died on the cross. He won't have to repeat that. The Lord has risen. The Lord has already triumphed. And now there only comes the mopping up operation of the Lord applying that, trump, that triumph. And we should recognize that if we are associated with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we profess to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, that what we are professing is to be children of God through faith in the Lord Jesus. And as his children, as Hebrews reminds us, that the Lord will discipline us. That if we become wayward, if we fall into sin, and we all do, the Lord will discipline us. And it's best to keep short accounts with God, as the old preachers used to say. In other words, immediately when I fall into it, 
to flee to the Lord and do what 1 John 1, 9 says. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We go to that Lord, to the Lord rather, for the feet washing ministry that he taught the disciples in John 13, where the Lord washes away the defilement on our conscience and applies the good of that work that he did for us so long ago on the cross of Calvary. And we can't be indifferent to sin, in other words. We can't just let it go on and think it doesn't matter. We have to deal with it and deal with it promptly, or the Lord will have to discipline us more seriously. Of course, he does it in love for our good. Now, look at verses 7 and 8, though. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Now, later in the book, people are going to complain, I believe in chapter 7, about Amos's preaching and say, dude, would you quit spouting off? Okay, that's the new Kaiser translation. But, uh, you know, they're going to complain and say, here you are telling us all this negative stuff. And they might quote Mick Jagger of old saying, hey, you get off of my cloud, you know? Don't bring me down, as the Beatles uh, sang once upon a time. I heard somebody had to take a class on the Beatles in college, so sorry for that. But, you know, pop culture would tell us all the way around, we don't want to hear about sin. We certainly don't want to hear about judgment and the wrath of God. Isn't that some outmoded, archaic idea? And here he's saying, no, listen, the Lord isn't going to do anything without telling us about it. That the Lord is this wonderful God. Look at that verb he uses in verse 7. He reveals his secret. Now, think of this. This Bible isn't a book of literature merely. It isn't a great bestseller, although it is. It isn't merely a book of history, although it is. It is the word of God to us. It is God revealing his mind and will. Imagine that. The smartest person in the universe, the creator of the human mind, has revealed to us what he wants to do with this world and what he wants to do with our lives, for that matter. And he gives his word to the prophets. Why? So that they can prophesy. He says, the Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? This rather reminds me in the New Testament of 2 Timothy 4, when in light of the fact that the Lord is going to come to judge the living and the dead, Paul tells Timothy, again, by inspiration of the Spirit of God, preach the word. Be instant in season and out of season. For the time is going to come when they're not going to listen to sound doctrine, but they're going to heap up to themselves teachers having itching ears. Now, do you get that? The Lord is going to come to judge one day. So we must preach the word. We have to be about that business of telling others what God has said. Whether we get fruit, that's in season, or whether there's no fruit, that's out of season. Whether it seems like the right time or whether it seems like the wrong time, we're to keep preaching the word. And he even tells Timothy the time is going to come when they're not going to want to hear it. When they're going to pile up the Joel Osteens and the Rod Parsleys and the Benny Hins and the I don't know who else and say we'd rather hear these people who are speaking lies. We would rather hear these people who are preaching 
rubbish and teaching false gospels than hear the truth of God. What do you do? Do you pack up and say, well, the people don't want to hear it. I guess we should stop telling them. He says, no, preach the word. Here Amos says, the Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? This is like Jeremiah in Jeremiah 20 saying that I tried to keep silent. But when I kept silence, the word of God was like fire in my bones. I had to get it out. I couldn't be silent. I had to preach the word. So he says, verse 9, proclaim in the palaces of Ashdod. Again, that's a Philistine city. And in the palaces in the land of Egypt. And say, assemble on the mountains of Samaria. That's the capital of the northern kingdom. See great tumults in her midst and the oppressed within her. For they do not do, they do not know to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Now, what an indictment that is. That he's looking at his people and he's saying, they don't know how to do right. Should they know? Yes, because they have the word of God. Yes, because God's preaching to them. Yes, because God's rising up early sending prophets. Are they listening? No, because they're oppressing people. So come here, Gentiles. Come here, Philistines. Come here, Egyptians. And the people of the northern kingdom would say, oh, yeah, those are the really bad sinners, you know. And God says, here, let me show you the sin they're doing. And let me show you how I'm going to judge them. He's going to show them, you know, that God's holiness doesn't play favorites and that nobody gets away with it, that God's going to deal with sin one way or another. And if they don't repent of it, it's going to overtake them, even as it did as a nation in 721 B.C. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, verse 11, an adversary shall be all around the land. He shall sap your strength from you and your palaces shall be plundered. So you thought you were so strong and you could take other people's stuff. Well, God's going to take your strength and take away all that you've accrued from other people. Now, there's a little picture of a remnant here. Thus says the Lord, verse 12, as a shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear. You know, when David talked about being a shepherd, when he was about to go out and fight that rather tall man you remember named Goliath, He said, your servant went out and when a lion or a bear came and took a a sheep out of the flock, I went and fought it and brought it back again. And and David was able to rescue that animal from the beast. Here, the, the rescue doesn't come off so well. The shepherd is only able to get back two legs or a piece of an ear. Well, I guess that's better than nothing, but that's pretty solemn words. You know, here... Yeah, there's a thought of a remnant. You're not going to be destroyed totally. There might be a couple legs or an ear left over out of you. I mean, is that really encouraging? So shall the children of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria. Now look at what's left of them. In the corner of a bed or on the edge of a couch. If you come into the ruins of a civilization, if you're an archaeologist and a thousand years later, two thousand years later, you're digging up a city that was razed to the ground, R-A-Z-E-D, for those who have such spelling words, and this may be a homeschooling reference for my second daughter, just saying, keep listening. But anyway, uh, when you come in and you view a ruined civilization, And you say, what's left of that civilization? Well, here is the remnant of a couch or a bed. 
Now, the symbol of what a situation, of what a civilization rather had been. What's the symbol of Israel? What do you think of when you think back to that culture? A bed or a couch? Well, I like beds and couches pretty well, but they're not very productive symbols, are they? They speak of a civilization that's given over to luxury and to indolence. In other words, they're kind of lazy people. Couch potatoes. These are the couch potatoes of the ancient world, okay? And instead of taking care of the spiritual things they should have been taking care of and seeking the Lord while he may be found, they were just lying on their beds until the judgment came and overtook them. It's a solemn picture, isn't it? Again, he says to them, verse 13, Hear and testify against the house of Jacob. Emphasizing, I think Jacob's used six times in this book. And Jacob, when it's used in the prophetic scripture and in the Psalms, speaks about the weakness of this nation. You remember Jacob was the trickster, the supplanter, whose name got changed to Israel, a prince with God. But when God wants to emphasize his weakness and his undeservedness, perhaps, he calls him Jacob. So hear and testify against the house of Jacob, says the Lord God, the God of hosts. Now, do you see the titles of the Lord proliferating here? This is the covenant-keeping God, the Almighty, the I am that I am. He's Elohim. He's the creator. He's the God of hosts. One has translated that the sovereign God who commands armies. This is a God of great power and might. And I think it's 19 times, if you count the pronouns, God refers to himself either explicitly by name or title or by pronoun in this passage. So over and over, it's God, it's God, it's God, just about every verse. That in that day, I punish Israel for their transgressions. I will also visit destruction on the altars of Bethel. And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. Now more on Bethel later. But Bethel, which originally meant the house of God, it's the place where Jacob met with God as he was leaving the land to go out for his long sojourn in Mesopotamia. And it was the place where he came again and worshipped God. And a very historic place in the true worship of God in the Bible. But in their day, Bethel had been one of the places where Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, founded his false religion and put up a golden calf there. And so he speaks about the horns of the altar, which that was supposed to be a place of refuge. Like I was reading the other day in 1 Kings 2, that uh, Adonijah goes in and grabs the horns of the altar, and he wants protection thereby. But here, there's no protection from this false altar, because he says the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I'll destroy the winter house along with the summer house. So you know those nice mansions up there in Newport, not so far away from here? You go up there and you look at those marvelous summer homes where the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers and the I don't know who else had homes, you know, and when they weren't slumming it down at Biltmore in North Carolina and places like that, they'd come up for the summer and see all the really lovely people, you know, for the summertime and have their stuffed quahogs and whatnot. And... uh He says that those summer homes are going to be destroyed and the winter homes too. All the things that speak about opulence and luxury in the society, it's going down. The houses of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall have an end, says the Lord. Now again, he says, hear this word, Shema, verse 1 of chapter 4. You cows of Bashan. 
Now, this is the area known as the Golan Heights, as I mentioned. It's a very fertile part of Israel, and in the ancient world, especially known for its very luscious cattle. Except we're not talking about the bovine variety in this verse. Uh, Amos is talking about the women of Israel. So this is not a flattering term, okay? And here were these women that were like luxurious cows that were well-fed and amply apportioned, therefore. And here they're living in their luxury and dissipation. And we read, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring wine, let us drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, behold, the day shall come upon you when he will take you away with fish hooks and your prosperity, excuse me, your posterity with fish hooks. You will go out through broken walls, each one straight ahead of her, and you'll be cast into Harmon, says the Lord. Now, one commentator I read made this statement that really a nation's morality doesn't rise any higher than its women. And you can see that through history that a lot of what made America great, for example, was the fact that there were solid women keeping the home fires burning. And when they came to Pennsylvania and built their Conestoga wagons in Lancaster County and took them out to Iowa and established their homesteads and built their Saudis in Kansas and and went out and subdued the West, it was because there were these intrepid, solid women And in many cases, many of the revivals in our history, the first great awakening, the second great awakening, because of the piety of believing Christian women, women who knew their Bibles and who, like my granny, that my earliest memory of my grandmother was her reading her Bible every morning, coming down and finding grandma, reading the Bible, meeting with God. And it's spoken to me all my life long of faithfulness, And the thing that Mamam above anything else wanted was that her grandchildren get saved. That we marry people who were saved. That our children, that she didn't live to see in my case, get saved. And many women like that, that have made us what we are as far as the good things. But when you get women that are throwing off the traces that are turning away from God in the Bible. Women who tend to be more interested. You can go right around the world to most countries and the missionaries will tell you it's the women that get interested in the gospel first. In many churches, it's the women that are the backbone of keeping the doors open and keeping the lights on. Even on the mission field, you look at the number of single ladies that go out to serve the Lord and compared to the number of single men, well, at least it used to be, I haven't counted lately in our handbook, but used to be a lot more single sisters. And many times there's that great faithfulness. But if the women are given over to sin and encouraging their husbands to go further into sin and dissipation, it's indeed destructive. Now, why does he speak about fish hooks here? Not to remind us that blackfish season is right around the corner, but it's because the Assyrians, as you can see again, on the wall reliefs that Layard brought back from, um, from Nineveh that speak about the siege of Lachish that you can see in London in the British Museum. And you can see different things on these wall reliefs where they put a hook through somebody's lip or through their nose and they carry them away, you know, with a rope or a chain attached to it. 
And this is how Assyria would do it. The people they didn't kill put a hook through their lip or nose and drag them away. So because of their sin, you're going to be carried away into captivity. Verse 4, come to Bethel, again, that place of, of idolatry, and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgression. I'll talk about these places in the next session when we look at chapter 5. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days, or the margin says it may be every three years, as Deuteronomy 14 speaks about. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce the freewill offerings. For this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. In other words, you're very religious. You're very careful to go through the motions of prayer and worship. But they were worshiping false gods. They were following a syncretistic religion. In other words, it was a mixture of some true names and false doctrines. We have religions like that all over Christendom today. People that would say, I'm a Christian, but they deny the deity of Christ. People that say, I'm a Christian, but they deny the bodily resurrection of our Lord. People that deny that the Lord Jesus Christ was sinless. People that affirm that the Lord Jesus taught sin. These are the same kind of errors that would have been common to them. And and God's basically saying, even for all your religious performance, you're not going to be spared. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. Oh, good. Oral hygiene is so important, isn't it? No, why are their teeth clean? Because they don't have anything to eat. Lack of bread in all your places. Yet you've not returned to me, says the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when there was still three months to the harvest. I made it rain on one city. I withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon, and where it did not rain, the part withered. So two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me. Again, he talks about blasting them with might and mildew and locusts and the destruction of their crops. And he says at the end of verse 9, Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Verse 10, I sent among you a plague after the manner of Egypt. Your young men I killed with sword along with your captive horses. I made the stench of your camps come up in your nostrils. Yet you've not returned to me, says the Lord. I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a firebrand plucked from the burning. Yet you've not returned to me, says the Lord. Now you get the picture? It's just like God warned them in Deuteronomy centuries before. If you turn to idols, if you turn away from me, if you don't follow my word, I'll withhold the rain. I'll bring famine on you. I'll send locusts among you. I'll send the plagues of Egypt on you. I'll give you defeat at the hands of your enemies. Everything Amos talks about here, God warned them about back in Deuteronomy. And they're not listening. Even with all this discipline, all these disasters that have come upon them, God says, yet you've not returned to me. You've not repented. You've not turned around and come back. You've not broken off your sin and said, Lord, we need you. Now think of us. We've had 9-11. We've had COVID-19. We have, of course, hurricanes. We have wildfires in the West. We have wars and rumors of wars. We have all kinds of calamities. And do people in our nation turn to the Lord through that? Well, I'm not saying no one does. (laughs) God is wonderful at reaching souls and bringing people to himself. But en masse, we haven't seen society turn to the Lord. And what of the church? 
Have professing believers been purified? Have we become a more holy people in general and gotten closer to the Lord and more desperately crying out to Him for mercy and more wanting to obey Him and live for Him and enjoy Him? Is that what we'd say about the church? No, unfortunately, we came out of COVID-19 and from what I read and what I can see myself, a lot of places, the church is as divided as ever. And many people have gone by the wayside. Many people aren't coming out anymore. They're not even Zooming anymore. It hasn't resulted in a deeper walk with the Lord, in a seeking after the Lord. So we really can't point our finger back at these folks, can we? Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind, who declares to man what his thought is and makes the morning darkness, who treads the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. Now, when he says prepare to meet thy God, it's a bit ambiguous. I know we gospel preachers like to extract that and we like to warn people, prepare to meet your God. You know, judgment's coming. And indeed, if people don't repent, they are, it is coming. The Lord Jesus said, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. So we have our own Lord's words for it many, many places in the Bible, don't we? But there's an alternative, isn't there? that we can turn in repentance, whether it's a lost person turning for the first time for salvation and crying out to the Lord. The Lord says, I'm not far away from you. In fact, I'm seeking you. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. The same God that came looking for Adam, saying, Adam, Adam, where art thou? Right after the first fall, comes after human beings today. And to the church, he comes to the churches. And five of the seven, you know, he tells to repent. Tells the believers, or at least professing believers, to turn around and get back to the Lord, to return to their first love in the case of Ephesus. And there's the opportunity held out here. What's it going to be? One way or another, you're going to have to deal with God. Are you going to deal with Him as your judge? Or are you going to deal with Him as your Savior? Are you going to have to deal with him in discipline as a believer? You've not lived the way you should and you're going to suffer loss at the judgment seat? Or are you going to find the Lord saying, well done, thou good and faithful servant? There's always a choice, isn't there? And we can come back to the Lord afresh, any moment, any time. That's the wonderful thing. He's ready to meet with us. And he is a great God. Father, we're thankful for thy word. We do pray, give us good fellowship in between sessions and afterwards. And help us to understand thy word aright as we listen to it. In the Lord Jesus' name, amen. We'll give you about 10 minutes. Try to start our next session at 5 after.